0: If you have your Bibles If you would open them to Genesis chapter 49 As you are Probably all aware I'm not good at giving titles to sermons uh, And yet this one I have And that is Two deaths, one burial Forgiveness and a promise Again I want to thank Tom For speaking last Sunday um, And for what he had to say Today, we come to the end of our study, which began with Abraham and continued with his son Isaac, Isaac's son Jacob, and then his son Joseph. The last time I spoke, we looked at chapter 49. At the beginning, it says Then Jacob called for his sons and said, Gather around me so I can tell you what will happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, sons of Jacob, listen to your father Israel. He begins with Reuben, his firstborn, and deals with each son. And at the end of the process, we read in verse number 28, all these are the 12 tribes of Israel, and this is what their father said to them when he blessed them, giving each the blessing appropriate to him. As I mentioned, you know, although it is referred to as a blessing, some of what he had to say sounded more like scolding and maybe even cursing. But as we saw, what Jacob had to say about each of his sons and their descendants was not some kind of inescapable fate that this is the way it must be, as we saw in the case of Levi. Levi, like Simeon, was to be scattered through the tribes, but Levi, in fact, became the priest tribe. As we begin, I, I want to point out something that we might gloss over because it's just so familiar to us. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, Indeed, from these 12 sons will come the tribes of Israel. But this is only the second time that they are referred to as tribes. Earlier, when speaking of Dan, um, Jacob said, Dan will provide justice for his people as one of the tribes of Israel. And now, indeed, at the end, the 12 are referred to as the tribes of Israel. He has blessed them, and now he gives them instructions. And that's where we'll begin today. Chapter 49, verse number 23. Then he gave them these instructions. I'm about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave in the field of Ephron the Hittite, the cave in which the the cave in the field of Makala near Mamre and Canaan, which Abra- Abraham bought as a burial place from Ephron the Hittite along with the field. There Abraham and his wife Sarah were buried, there Isaac and his wife Rebekah were buried, and there I buried Leah. The field and the cave in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob had finished giving instructions to his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. Jacob and his sons have been in Egypt uh, for at least 17 years. But Egypt is not their home. You would think after living someplace for 17 years, you begin to feel at home, but it is not their home. Egypt is not the land that God promised to Abraham. The legitimacy of their claim to Canaan is the promise that God made to Abraham. And Jacob wants to make this clear to his sons by instructing them he is to be buried where Abraham is buried, where Sarah is buried, Isaac, Rebekah, and Leah, in mentioning their names, and he could have just simply said, you know, where the old ones are buried, he is, in fact, pointing to the patriarchs and their wives. These are the foundation of the nation of Israel. And we just read about the 12 tribes. Well, the 12 tribes, this is the nation. It all goes back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I find it worth mentioning that Leah is listed here uh, not Rachel Rachel was his, the one he loved uh, The one he worked for To marry But she died on the way to Bethlehem And was buried in a separate tomb It is Leah who is buried With the patriarchs And if you wish with the matriarchs With Sarah, Rebecca, Leah is included Leah by the way Is the mother of Judah From whom the Messiah will come Jacob recounts the story of the chosen location. That Abraham bought it from Ephron the Hittite. It's mentioned twice in these two verses. It's the field of Machpelah, it's near Mamre and Canaan. This event, the buying of the cave, happened over 170 years earlier. Okay, 170 years earlier. But Jacob has kept the story alive because it is the land that God promised to Abraham and his descendants, which includes Jacob, and his sons and their descendants. It is interesting that he describes his coming death as being gathered to my people. And at the end, in fact, when he dies, his death death is described in the same way. He breathed his last and was gathered to his people. And some might think that this is a reference to his burial. Um, But I think what Jacob envisioned was life beyond the grave. That there is a continuity, that when we die here, it's not the end of the story. There is a continuity, and while he leaves his sons behind, he will now join those who have gone ahead. You may remember what Jesus said to the Sadducees, who did not believe in the resurrection. But in the account of the bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for to him all are alive. And so, while there is a real sense in which Jacob's life on this earth ended, he envisions, and so does the writer, that his life did continue when he was gathered to his people. Now we come to the last chapter of Genesis, chapter 50. Let's read the first 14 verses Joseph threw himself upon his father and wept over him and kissed him Then Joseph directed the physicians in his service to embalm his father Israel so the physicians embalmed him taking a full 40 days for that was the time required for embalming and the Egyptians mourned for him 70 days When the days of mourning were had passed Joseph said to Pharaoh's court If I have found favor in your eyes, speak to Pharaoh for me. Tell him, my father made me swear an oath and said, I am about to die, bury me in the tomb I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. Now let me go up and bury my father, then I will return. Pharaoh said, go and bury your father, as he has made you swear to do. So Joseph went up to bury his father. All Pharaoh's officials accompanied him, the dignitaries of his court and all the dignitaries of Egypt. Besides all the members of Joseph's household and his brothers and those belonging to his father's household, only their children and their flocks and herds were left in Goshen. Chariots and horsemen also went up with him. It was a very large company. When they reached the threshing floor of Atad, near the Jordan, they lamented loudly and bitterly. And there Joseph observed a seven-day period of mourning for his father. When the Canaanites who lived there saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, The Egyptians are holding a solemn ceremony of mourning. That is why the place near the Jordan is called Abel Mizraim. And so Jacob's sons did as he commanded them. They carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre, which Abraham had bought as a burial place from Ephron the Hittite along with the field. After burying his father, Joseph returned to Egypt together with his brothers and all the others who had gone with him to bury his father. Although the sons were there when Jacob died, Joseph is the one who is mentioned. I think in part because of the bond between uh, Jacob and his favorite son, Joseph. But also, Joseph was the one who was in a position to take the lead to implement Jacob's request. Uh, Reuben is the oldest, but He has no standing in Egypt where he could say, well, this is what we're going to do. Joseph has that standing. He can, in fact, go to Pharaoh and ask that he be allowed to bury Jacob in Canaan. Embalming is an Egyptian practice. It is something foreign uh, to the people of Canaan, to the Israelites, certainly. Um, But by embalming him, it allowed them to make the long journey to Canaan uh, to bury Jacob as he instructed them to do. We're told it took 40 days. And then we are told that the Egyptians mourned for Jacob 70 days. Now, this is significant because he's not Egyptian. Okay? He's the father of Joseph, but for them to mourn 70 days. But the significance may escape us. We are told historically that when the Pharaoh died, people mourned for him 72 days. So for them to mourn for Jacob for 70 days puts him right up there. He is seen as someone to be respected and someone for whom they mourned. It shows the high esteem with which they viewed Jacob. The question is, why did Joseph ask for permission? Uh, he's a high position. He's second only to Pharaoh. It would seem that he could do what he wanted. Um, that's a very modern way of thinking, um, in the ancient world, everybody served the king. Everybody served Pharaoh in Egypt. And so people just can't go off willy-nilly and do what they want. Even though he is second only to Pharaoh, he is Pharaoh's servant. And he asks. But why doesn't he ask directly? Why does he sort of go through? He says to Pharaoh's court, if I found favor in your eyes, speak to Pharaoh for me. Why doesn't he just do it? Because Joseph is unclean is a mourner. He is someone who has been mourning for his father, meaning that he could not personally approach Pharaoh, could not come into Pharaoh's presence. You may have noticed, um, why does it say that he is to be buried um, in a cave that he had dug? Um, I, th- I thought there was a cave. Well, a cave is in fact a natural, a natural formation but there would be shelves that would be cut that would be hewed into the wall and with, on which the body would be placed. And apparently Jacob had already done this. Jacob had years before made the preparation. He had buried his wife Leah there. He knows one day he will be buried there and he had made the appropriate preparations. Pharaoh gives permission and more. He sends all his court, all the dignitaries, of his court, all the dignitaries of Egypt go with uh, Joseph and to accompany Jacob's body as they go to Canaan um, Joseph and his brothers go all of the household except the children and the animals, they stay behind in Goshen uh, by the way, Joseph tells Pharaoh I'm coming back, just in case there's any question, you know, I'm not deserting I'm going up there and then I will be back It was a very large company, we are told. All Pharaoh's officials, the dignitaries of his court, all the dignitaries of Egypt. One might say that for a period of time, things just shut down officially in Egypt because everybody except Pharaoh went up to Canaan. There's a question that cannot be answered directly, and that's what route did they take? Um, If you look at a map, if you can think about it, you cross the Sinai Peninsula, you can go right up the coast. The Gaza Strip, and you could get uh, to Canaan that way. I don't think that's what happened. Uh, in fact, I think what happened was they went the route that Israel would take centuries later. They went on the east side of the Jordan River and then they crossed over. Why? Well, the Philistines were there, and you know, to not cause any problems, marching through their territory. It's a large company, and you know, all these chariots and horsemen are coming prelude to an invasion instead they go the long way and then they cross the Jordan River and there after they cross the Jordan River uh, the floor of Atad they mourned another seven days it says that they mourned loudly and bitterly the Canaanites saw this and so they named the place Abel Mizraim that is Egyptian mourning. The mourning of the Egyptians. And Jacob is buried by his sons. Just as he commanded. By the way. You notice that in verse number 12. So Jacob's sons did as he had commanded them. This wasn't a request. These weren't simple, simply instructions. He had commanded them. This is what you're supposed to do. They bury him. And then they return to Egypt. Now There is. Confrontation is too strong a word. There is uh, an issue between Joseph and his brothers. Um, One commentator has a heading here. Guilt continues to haunt the brothers. Look, if you would, at verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph I ask you to forgive your brothers The sins and the wrongs they committed In treating you so badly Now please forgive the sins of the servants Of the God of your father When their message came to him Joseph wept His brothers then came And threw themselves down before him We are your slaves they said But Joseph said to them Don't be afraid Am I in the place of God You intended to harm me But God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he assured them or reassured them and spoke kindly to them. The brothers are concerned that now that Jacob is gone, it's kind of cold to say, but he's out of the way, that Joseph can now get his revenge on his brothers. It seems that they had a meeting to discuss this possibility. The brothers met together and like, we could be in serious trouble here. And so what they do is they send a letter. They send a message to Joseph. They don't go to him face to face. It's very, very backdoorish type of thing. By the way, uh, they must have known the story about Esau and Jacob, Uncle Esau how mad he was and he said you know when you know Isaac is getting old and when he dies I'm going to kill my brother for what he did. Are they thinking that this sort of runs in the family that Joseph will now seek to get his revenge? Um, Are they still simply bearing guilt? Uh, It's just my opinion. But nowhere in Genesis, from the story of what they did to Joseph, to when he reveals himself to them, and even here, there is no indication that they ever repented for what they did. And in fact, the message that they send is, it is Jacob who says, forgive your brothers for the wrong they did. The brothers never say, we did wrong. And in fact, when they finally come face to face, they're like, we're your slaves. They don't say, brother, please forgive us for what we did. Um, Haunted by their guilt, I think they find forgiveness almost impossible. And so they don't seek it. They simply don't want to die. For 40 years, they have carried this guilt. 40 years, but because they have not confessed their sin to Joseph and asked for his forgiveness, it still haunts them. Joseph's response is on a number of levels. First of all, it is emotional. He weeps. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. You know, Unwilling or unable to face their brother, they send the message, and Joseph is distraught. I mean, these are his brothers, and so he weeps. But then there's a practical aspect. He says, you intended to harm me. And let's be very clear about this. Joseph does not minimize what they did. He doesn't pretend like it didn't happen, or that it could be overlooked. No biggie, no worry, no problem. He's very clear that, in fact, what they did was wrong. They intended to harm him. But then he gives us three theological foundations, I think, that are true for us today. It's the basis of faith. First of all, leave all the writing of wrongs to God. Verse 19, but Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? It is God." who is the God of vengeance, we are not supposed to be. Romans twelve nineteen. do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it's in Deuteronomy 32, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. 1 Thessalonians five fifteen. we think this is the first epistle of Paul's. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always try to be kind to each other and to everyone else. Proverbs 20, verse 22. Do not say, I'll pay you back for this wrong. Wait for the Lord, and he will deliver you. Psalm 94. O Lord, the God who avenges. O God who avenges, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Pay back to the proud what they deserve. Joseph is very clear on this. He's second to Pharaoh. He can have their heads chopped off. He can take everything they have. No, this is God's place. This is something that belongs to God. Leave the writing of wrongs to God. I've mentioned this before, but I, I think even though it's in the middle of a strike right now, uh, the movie industry would probably suffer great loss if we took away revenge as a driving force in the story. It's always about getting revenge, or so it seems. Secondly, God's providence is seen even in human malice. You intended to harm me. They wanted to kill him, actually. And they ended up just selling him. Okay? There was certainly malice there. But God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. When Joseph finally revealed himself to his brothers, this in chapter 45. He says, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into slavery in Egypt. Okay. Through this very callous, you remember they threw him in the dry cistern and then they had lunch. <laughs> they were going to kill him and then they said, no, let's sell him. The hatred they had for him, the jealousy, the malice, and yet God's purpose was fulfilled through this. We see this also in the death of Jesus, supremely in the death of Jesus, that God's will is in fact accomplished even through human malice. And then the third thing is we are to repay evil not only with forgiveness, but also with practical affection. Luke chapter 6. But I tell you who hear me, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Joseph tells his brothers, so then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. This is personal. This isn't like, that's it. Okay, slate's clean. Go home. Relax. Don't be afraid. It's like, no, I will provide for you and your children. I suspect sometimes that we feel like we've done our duty when we say, I forgive you. But that's, that's only part of it. Um, there's to be practical affection. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says that we are not to hate our enemies, we're to love them and pray for them. The time that we spend in prayer with our Heavenly Father, a portion of that is to be dedicated those who are our enemies now we come to the last part of the book of Genesis it is Joseph's death and a promise verse 22 Joseph stayed in Egypt along with all his father's family he lived a hundred and ten years and saw the third generation of Ephraim's children Also the children of Maker, son of Manasseh, were placed at birth on Joseph's knees. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land, to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the sons of Israel swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up from this place." So Joseph died at the age of 110. And then after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. a Couple things here. First of all, 110, not as long as his father, who was 147, his grandfather 180 years. But in Egyptian custom, the tradition was that 110 years was like the perfect age. If you could live to be 110, that was like you get a gold star for that. This this was the right age. And so Joseph dying at this age, at least in an Egyptian culture, was, you know, that's the right age. To see one's grandchildren was considered a blessing. Psalm 128, one of the songs of ascent. May the Lord bless you from Zion all the days of your life. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem. And may you live to see your children's children. Proverbs 17, children's children are a crown to the aged and parents are the pride of their children. In Joseph's case, he not only saw his grandchildren, not only his great-grandchildren, but his great-great-grandchildren through Ephraim. On the Egyptian side, he was blessed because he lived to be 110 years old. Theologically, in the Old Testament, he is blessed because he gets to see his grandchildren, his great-grandchildren and his great-great-grandchildren. And then he gives his brothers, who must have outlived him at this point, uh, an assurance of deliverance. I'm about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land, to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This may be an indication that there were already difficulties for the Israelites. You may recall at the beginning of Exodus, the next book over, the next chapter, that there was a Pharaoh who did not know Joseph. And he enslaved the Israelites. And it may be, in fact, at this point, that troubles had already begun. He gives instructions. As with Jacob, he wants to be buried in Canaan. So Joseph made them swear an oath that, in fact, they would... When they, God delivers them They would take his body with them To Canaan And this happened In Exodus chapter 13 As the Israelites are leaving uh, Egypt in the great Exodus Moses took the bones of Joseph with him Because Joseph had made the sons of Israel Swear an oath He had said God will surely come to your aid And then you must carry my bones up with you to, From this place When they got to Canaan When they settled in Canaan they, in fact, buried his bones. Uh, in the next to the last verse, in the book of Joshua, Joshua 24, and Joseph's bones, which the Israelites had brought up from Egypt, were buried at Shechem in the tract of land that Jacob had bought for a hundred pieces of silver from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem. This became the inheritance of Joseph's descendants. But The story all begins with Abraham or Abram as he was first known. When we began this series, we saw that in fact, Abraham is referred to as the father of us all. In Galatians, we are told we are the children of Abraham, that he is the man of faith. In James, he is called God's friend. And in fact, in the prayer of Jehoshaphat, he's referred to as Abraham, your friend, in speaking to God. In Isaiah 41 But you O Israel my servant Jacob whom I have chosen You descendants of Abraham my friend He is In many ways the foundation Of the Christian faith Of Judaism as well as Islam As I mentioned when we began Ibrahim uh, is his name uh, In the Quran is mentioned 170 times um, But all of this, I think, may skew our view of things, and skew our view of him. Um, There's certain truths I think that we have seen and hopefully now as we end, will take with us. First of all, we may lose sight of this, but it is clear from the beginning that God took the initiative. God is the one who called Abram and his wife Sarai. He wanted to make a people for himself. He wanted to draw people to himself. Abram did not decide to go and find God. It is God who intervened in his life. We need to be clear that humanity does not gradually evolve through the various stages of religious consciousness that finally we reach the point where we're like, oh, we're supposed to be monotheists. There's only one God. That somehow we go through these developmental stages And somehow we come to the truth. There's no indication before, I would even say after, that Abraham and his family had any particular flair for religion. There's nothing that says, you know, these were really religious people. There's nothing at all to indicate that. It is God who calls him. The Lord said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. When we hear these words, we should not then be offended When Jesus says in John 15, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. This really, I think, rubs us the wrong way. We would rather think that we were the ones who were searching, we were seeking, we were looking for God and we found him. And it's sort of a good thing for him that we did um, so now we can worship him. No. We are the children of Abraham. He's the father of us all. God called him. I'm reminded of the C.S. Lewis quote that men look for God the way the mouse looks for the cat. Uh, we seek to avoid him. Abram didn't say, I want to find the true God. It is God who called him. Secondly, God's purpose in calling him was not only to bless him, but to bless all peoples. Not only for his descendants, but for humanity. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. It isn't, Abram, I want you, I, you know, listen to me, and you're going to have a hassle-free life. No problems, no difficulties. Well, we know that wasn't the case. In fact, he had to wait 25 years for Isaac to be born. Um, but God intended, through Abraham and his descendants, to bless all peoples on earth. The third thing we see is that God begins on a small scale. Very small scale, one would say. A 75 year old man with a 65 year old wife who is infertile. I mean, all things being equal, this is not where you want to start. If you're going to be calling someone, call someone who has a large family or better yet, call a clan, a tribe, a nation. But God begins with this this older couple. This always seems to be God's way. When God decides to spare Egypt, from the famine that is coming he does so through a man who is a prisoner who is a slave someone named Joseph when Jesus comes into the world he chooses 12 men to be his disciples he's born in a manger in a stable God starts off very small something I think we're just not comfortable with in an age of social media uh, we'd want him to be trending you know? And that's not how God does things. And then lastly, in difficult circumstances, God reveals his character. When we began the series, Dave, who posts the sermons online, sent me an email and said, what do you want the title for the series to be? Um, and at that point, I thought we were just going to do Abraham, so I just like, Abraham won, you know. The next one, Abraham too. And he said, well, why not trial and grace? He chose wisely. Because what you have seen in the life of Abram, who later becomes Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, is trial and then grace. And in the trial, at the end, God reveals himself in a new way. He is the one who provides on Mount Moriah when he was supposed to sacrifice Isaac. Even to Hagar, the Egyptian handmaiden, God reveals himself in difficult circumstances. In trials, God shows grace and reveals himself in new ways. We're ending our study now at the book of Genesis. We find that Israel is, because we know what comes next, is on the verge of a great trial four centuries of being enslaved a great great trial but then comes the great act of grace in the exodus it is the redemptive act in the old testament it is an act that is repeated uh, is referred to in the epistles over and over again this is god saving his people but first there may in fact be difficulties there may be trials Abraham and Sarah had to wait 25 years for Isaac to be born. Joseph was a slave for 13 years. There are difficulties, but by God's grace, there is grace at the end of it. As the quote that Tom read to us today from meditation, all prayer ultimately ends in praise. Praise. He alone is worthy to be praised. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are grateful for the time you have given us to study the lives of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, his sons, and particularly Joseph. And to be reminded of what we so easily forget, that you always take the initiative We want to take the credit but it is you who reaches out to us and your intent is not only to bless us but that we might in fact be gracious and a blessing to those around us. You don't do things the way we think you should. You seem to choose the small, the obscure and yet your purposes are always fulfilled even through malice the malice of humanity, Joseph's hatred for Joseph, your purposes are brought to pass. And as we have seen, as we go through difficult times, you are there right with us every step of the way. You are gracious to us and you reveal to yourself in new and deeper ways. And in the end, we praise you. We give thanks to you. We bow before you and acknowledge you as our God, Abraham's God as well. I thank you for this time, this past six months of going through the life of Abraham and his descendants. May we take this to heart May your spirit remind us from time to time the truths that we have studied. And now as we leave this place, we ask that your spirit and your grace would go with us. Again, we thank you for loving us and for sending your son. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.